Welcome to Voices of Santa Clara. Having a good idea doesn't get you nothing. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Welcome to the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Cosgrave, and whether this is your first time listening or the 16th episode that you've listened to, I'm glad that you're here. On this podcast, I interview different students, staff, and professors at Santa Clara to hear about their life stories and lessons learned. If you like this episode and you want more, there are 15 previous episodes, and the top three that are both my favorites and that have the most downloads are my interview with business school dean Karen Beck Dudley, the recent study abroad episode with four students, and my interview with Thomas Plant. A quick Q&A with myself before we jump into today's show. I often get asked why I started the show, why would any college student give themselves more unpaid work to do, and the truth is that after listening to hundreds and hundreds of podcast episodes over the past couple years, I wanted to get in on the fun. Being at Santa Clara, I knew there were many more incredible and interesting students and professors than I would ever be able to meet through only taking classes or joining clubs, so I thought that starting the podcast would be a fun way to hear the stories of some of Santa Clara's hidden, or in the case of today's episode, not-so-hidden, gems. Additionally, it's been a great way for me to improve my question-asking skills and learn which questions generally lead to fun stories or insightful answers. When I started the show back in September, I thought that perhaps if I interviewed people the whole year, I would eventually be able to talk to Father Aang, maybe at the end of spring quarter or something. But fortunately, thanks to the help of some staff friends that I've made along the way, the Father Aang interview happened even earlier than I hoped. Um, And so a quick introduction to our guest, Father Michael Aang is the president of Santa Clara, a position he has held since 2009. He's on a wide variety of boards and committees, both within the university and across the nation. Father Ang started out as a history professor and spent many years at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. In this episode, we discuss Father Ang's time working at the Dolores Mission in Los Angeles, what his daily schedule looks like, and how he communicates with the university when things go wrong. We also talk about some of the most challenging and rewarding parts of his job, what he would do with a $10 million check, and what programs he is most excited about moving forward. Um, That's all the introduction I have, so we will play the interview, and thanks for listening. Thank you, Father Ang, for doing this interview. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to start out with, um, so I read that you took a two-year break from teaching at Loyola Marymount um, mm-hmm. to work at Mission Dolores in Los Angeles uh, while doing research for your dissertation. So why did you choose uh, to do that work? And were there any experiences mm-hmm. that helped kind of shape you as an individual during that time? Okay. Dolores Mission is the Jesuit parish on the east side of Los Angeles, and Loyola Marymount is on the far west side. I was actually doing my research work at the Huntington Library, which is out of Pasadena, which is even further east. So I found the the Jesuit community there at Dolores Mission, a very convenient place to live. And I knew some of the guys that that were there. And it gave me a chance then to get involved in some of the pastoral activities at the parish. So every day I would go out to the research library and do my work. I was working on a book at the time. And then 
I could come back and help out of the parish. Some of the guys, one of the guys in particular, was working at the Central Juvenile Hall. And he mentioned to me one time, you know, would I like to come down and help on Sunday Mass? Which I did, and then I got introduced to the young people that were there. And found out they had actually a school there where uh, it's a boys' school and a girls' school. And they, they were working towards their, their graduate equivalent diplomas since they hadn't finished high school. So then I started tutoring during the week. So I ended up twice a week working there at Juvenile Hall, helping these a certain group of students get through their GEDs uh, and actually saw them you know, complete their work. So that was an introduction to getting more and more involved. Uh, then there was, you know, Wednesday night, it was a chance to come and visit. Sundays was a chance to visit. Basically, these are people that don't, don't have anybody to pay much attention to them. So it introduced me to a whole other reality of what these young people had uh, gone through. They, they were between the ages of 13 and 18, and, but they were either awaiting a court date or waiting transfer or doing their time there. Uh, the, so that was got to be very engaging. Since I was doing work on, on, on kind of social justice history in Los Angeles, this was kind of grounding me in the reality of real life people, as well as uh, taking me back in time in terms of what I was interested in, in, in researching. So there were a lot of activities at the parish. Uh, sorry, it was an activist parish. And so there was a lot of concern about protecting the neighborhood, making it safer, the beginnings of concern for immigrants, because this is some years ago. So there was a lot of things to actually plug into. So was, so after one year, I decided I had received a research grant, so I just extended it for a second year. So one year was sabbatical, one year was research grant, hmm. and then back to Little Marymount. Hmm. Did, it, did it change uh, at all what you wanted to do in, in the future? Did you just continue? You know, it changed my teaching. Uh, when I went back to LMU, I taught a course on uh, the history of race relations in Los Angeles. And so we did a look, we did a deep dive in terms of historically how people in Los Angeles gotten along, you know, and with waves of migration and immigration. Because when when uh, African Americans came in large numbers during World War II, when Mexican American Mexicans came from Mexico at the time of the Mexican Revolution, huge changes. When the large Jewish population moved in, also in the you know nineteen teens and the twenties, all of these people were interacting, and then you had Japanese and Chinese. So it was a very, very multicultural setting in a city that had largely been, up to that point, had been largely white and Protestant. So the dynamics that were at play were really interesting to me in terms of how do I take my experience having worked in juvenile hall and worked on the east side and bring it into the classroom. Mm -hmm. So uh, it did it change my teaching, and it actually... Uh, kept my, my research on social justice highly focused, because mm -hmm. you know, I, I could, on the one hand, I could see the modern day examples. On the other hand, I could see the historical roots and the evolution, mm -hmm. you know, clashes and compromises and progress. Mm -hmm. It was all mixed together. Mm -hmm. So one of the hard things in the, in the teaching the class was how did students interrelate to one another? Because I had a, a mix of, of student backgrounds there and in a seminar, which is largely discussion, how do you teach people to listen and to talk respectfully, to ask questions? So it was a real laboratory in terms of what we're actually studying. Hmm. Yeah. And what, what did you find was most effective in terms of getting students to 
to work together to have discussions about the difficult topics. You know, the most important thing I found with, with, the, with the ground rules in the very beginning of the class and to, to be very explicit and spend a lot of time explaining how hard it is to listen to each other. How difficult, because we didn't have, there aren't many role models of people showing how to listen to each other, how to be non-judgmental, how to accept what somebody is saying before saying, that, well, that's wrong. And to get away from the language of what's right and what's wrong and to focus more on, here's my experience. I hear your experience. I see the differences in our experiences. And I can see, so that, those, the, the whole first class had to focus on that. And I had to have it in the syllabus. I had to refer to it at the beginning of each class. As the semester went on, it got, it got easier. But we would, when we got into some of the topics, it got heated again. Uh, because nobody leaves all of their background at the door. They bring it in with them into the class. Mm -hmm. And what they hear at home and what they hear with other people that they interact with doesn't always invite immediate reflection. They've got to stop, hear themselves, learn to speak to each other. So it was it was an ongoing dynamic, and you know sometimes it got hot in there, but you know we learned to be actually listen through that. Mm -hmm. And at that point, were had you already decided to be a Jesuit or? Oh, I was long a Jesuit by that. Yeah. Well, what was the specific moment when you decided that that's what you were going to do? Oh my gosh, that was my senior year of college. Mm -hmm. So uh, and then, so that was years before. Mm -hmm. Well, what was was there any reason or moment or experience that led you to decide? Oh, there's a whole story right there. Wife. You have a whole podcast just on that. <laughs> uh, there were some young Jesuits who were studying at the school, and some of them were history majors, so I got to know them. Mm -hmm. And then I got—I knew I wanted to teach. Uh, and then in my junior and senior years, I began asking myself, "What do I really want to do with my life? What's going to have meaning for me? What's going to be satisfying for me?" And I kept asking that question again and again. Because I was working, I worked half time going through college uh, to pay my tuition, and, and full time in the summers. So I knew I, I was employable. <laughs> I knew I could get a job. I knew I could pay for things. So I was asking myself, well, what more is there in life that's what's more satisfying than simply having a paycheck? Uh, what's more satisfying? As I looked at you know occupations, a social life, a girlfriend, you know, future for me. And so it was, it was, a, there was a real discernment that went on back and forth through the junior and senior years. And a part of that, then you actually discover there's a spiritual side. I have discovered mm -hmm. that, oh gosh, there's a spiritual side, even for me. It's not just something that other people have. It's like, it actually speaks with me. So that's the whole development of a relationship that goes on inside, relationship between myself and this person, Jesus. Mm -hmm. And then moving more into your, uh, your current role as president, um, what's an example of what your daily schedule looks like? What do you actually do on a day-to-day -day basis? You know, I pulled up my schedule for today. Okay. So usually in the morning, I exercise and I have time for prayer and meditation, breakfast, and then come to work. Okay. So nine o'clock, I'm here with you. 10 o'clock, I meet with a citizens group that's coming in from the community at 10.30, I meet with some uh, with on our Sustaining Excellence program. 11 o'clock, the lead council of some, uh, students from the lead program are coming in to talk about issues on campus, race, and civil discourse. Lunch, I'm having 
a lunch appointment. I'll put it that way. Okay. And the afternoon, I have more meetings uh, that run until five o'clock. Uh, the uh, at five o'clock there is a dinner with the uh, anthropology club just off campus. In the evening, we have community mass with the Jesuits. Today we're hosting the Jesuits from Bellman Prep, so they're coming over. Uh, and then tonight it's Camu Bell in, in the recital hall. So that's basically nine to nine. Yeah. Okay. Um, does that does that crazy schedule ever make you feel overwhelmed or uh, or stressed? And if so, what do you do? When Is that there happens? stress in my life? What an interesting <laughs> question. Who would ever have stress? Last week it was a meeting of the board of trustees. We had a series of meetings over the weekend. We had the the Golden Circle fundraiser. We had 2,600 people here to raise money for scholarships. We held that off campus. That was two days of events. Uh, Tuesday was the uh, State of the University address. So I'd say the last week was highly stressful because there were so many demands, so many speeches, so many people to see. Uh, and it does, it, 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 there's like, there's peaks and valleys. There are times that are really busy, and then there are times that are not so busy. Mm -hmm. And then, then there's time for travel, and there's times when I'm not traveling. So that's why every the morning exercise, prayer, mm -hmm. mass at the end of the day. These are things that keep me balanced. Mm -hmm. And then touching base with the community mm -hmm. helps keep me grounded. Like mm -hmm. we're all in here working on together as Jesuits for this university. Mm -hmm. It helps keep me balanced that way. Mm -hmm. And then I rely on my staff a lot. You know, mm -hmm. they do a lot of work here that makes things move forward. Mm -hmm. What would you say are the most challenging and rewarding parts of your job? Uh, the most challenging parts of the job is, is always around planning, uh, planning so that we can manage our budget and, and stay in the black, uh, challenging so that we can handle personnel issues in terms of job performance or people, you know, when, when uh, there are difficulties around that, mm -hmm. those are really challenging. Issues that come up from the university, like in terms of uh, the, the racial issue, the racial bias in incidents on campus, those are just come out of the blue, you know, and so you never know when something's going to come up like that, mm -hmm. which means dropping everything and paying attention to this issue at the time, mm -hmm. which impacts a schedule like this to say, oops, I've got to attend to this. So the challenging part is uh, planning on developing structures to make it possible to deal with these things. So example, there's a proposal that we have a bias incidence response team so that when issues do come up, there's a group that can meet immediately, assess it, consult, and then give me advice. Mm -hmm. uh, with social media, the need for that is so much greater because when I was first president starting 10 years ago, we didn't have the degree of social media now. And so now everything is instantaneous. And universities are not instantaneous institutions. I mean, there's so many people and so many programs and so many levels of activity. It's very hard in the face of social media to keep up with that. Mm -hmm. So we've had to adapt. And that's why we're looking at that. So th that's the challenging part. A rewarding part is for me is either hearing about a faculty success for a grant or a publication, a lecture. Uh, rewarding for me is when students are recognized, 
my conversations with individual students are probably the most rewarding experiences I have because all of us, faculty, staff, administrators, we're here because of students, mm-hmm. you, okay? Mm-hmm. And so when, when it's a chance to talk with students, it makes all the difference in the world in mm-hmm. terms of how my day is going, mm-hmm. you know, because I can understand what a student's facing or what a student has accomplished. Mm-hmm. We get a Rhodes Scholar. That's like, that, that's like winning the, you know, an Oscar. Uh, but anytime we have successes like that, it's important. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing, one thing you mentioned there was uh, emails that are sent out to this the student body, which um, a lot of times are one of the main ways that students probably hear directly from you, and that's and those often come after like a major national event or sometimes mm-hmm. like a on campus event. So I guess what do you view your role as when when something goes wrong, um, and how do you like decide what to do next in those situations? It's a very good question. Very good question. Um, if there's been some kind of an incident, it's I need to be notified, and then I need to know to whom to delegate that for an in, for the, the quickest response possible. Uh, that means I've got to usually if it's a student incident, I turn to Jeannie Rosenberger over in Student Life, and she and her team investigate as quickly as possible, and then report back to me and to my staff so that I'm kept up to speed in terms of what's going on. My principle of organization is you handle issues at the closest level to them. And it's not from not at the top, but it's the closest level. It's called subsidiarity because there's people at each level that are that know their jobs and they're professionals in their jobs. I don't have to know each of those jobs. I have to have the best possible people and they have to step up at that time and keep me in the loop. We have a whole procedure here in terms of protocol, uh, in terms of if there are major incidents, then how the university administration springs into action. Mm-hmm. So when we had the, the, the meningitis outbreak, we immediately con- convened this group and then began meetings twice a day. Mm-hmm. And so it involves then Cal Health, it involves Jeannie Rosenberger from Student Life, it involves communications, it involves uh, legal affairs, it, you know, bring all these people together, the leaders, and then delegate jobs out to do, and then report back. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, establish an, an online setting of where to post updates mm-hmm. as things go forward, as people do their jobs. The meningitis outbreak, I guess that was a year and a half ago or two. Mm-hmm. Three, okay, uh, before your time then. Uh, but that was an instance where we moved very, very quickly on that. Because that was life-threatening, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. literally. And we've we've touched on a little bit in the past uh, stress. And then the, just a couple of days ago in your State of the University, you mentioned stress. So why do you think that's an important topic uh, for the university to think about. Right you know, now. it's interesting. It's not just for the university. It's across the United States. And I think when I cited the, the American Psychological Association, it was to give us the, to place our situation in the larger national context. The whole country is stressed because we have a, a presidential administration that is uh, provocative and uh, ha- is very challenging. And it's, it's very different than anything that we've ever faced before. It's combative. And it, it, and it 
there is a tendency then to to place one group in conflict with another that's mm -hmm. being encouraged from Washington. We haven't faced this before. Mm -hmm. And when you add in social media, so everything is happening so much faster, mm -hmm. I've talked, it, it's, it's a very different set of scenario. And I've talked to presidents from across the United States of other Jesuit schools mm -hmm. and, and presidents of other schools. And there's a national awareness that universities are highly concentrated areas of population, mm -hmm. you know, where students and faculty and staff interact on a daily basis, unlike many other places. And when you add then students trying to, you know, discover what their values are, live out their values, embrace their ideals, and then you put that together in a combative situation, and then you add in social media, it's a mix that uh, we haven't seen before. Uh, I've said to other people, this reminds me of when growing up during the Vietnam War, in college in the Vietnam War, when there was so much confrontation going on. But we didn't have social media back then. You, we watched it on the evening news, you know, in black and white for half an hour, maybe with color in later years. Uh, but it was taking place on college campuses uh, and there was a division. I mean, people still talk about how the country became highly divided in the Vietnam War. We haven't seen that since the 60s and it's happening again now. Mm -hmm. And we have social media mm -hmm. to speed it up and put everybody in much closer, much more rapid uh, communication. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the other thing that's different now is that there's a different, there's a different consciousness uh, it's much more common after civil rights movement and, and others, uh, you know, the, the farm workers, uh, uh, union organizing, etc., women's rights movements. There's a much greater consciousness of human rights than we had 50 years ago. And so that's another element that distinguishes this area that people are very cognizant. They're very conscious of infringements on rights mm -hmm. and, uh, so when the federal government is is causing greater friction mm -hmm. and people are more aware of a defense of human rights uh, and social justice, mm -hmm. uh, and you had social media, come keep coming back to that. Mm -hmm. This is a volatile combination. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's uh, it requires a greater degree of oversight and a lot greater reflection on how do you manage all this? Mm -hmm. you know, and manage is what it is. A leader wants to be in front of things. Mm -hmm. You don't always want to be reacting. Mm -hmm. So the reflection means you got uh, a leader has to be thinking ahead. So how do we do this better before something happens? Mm -hmm. And for Santa Clara, are there any um, areas that you think it could grow, or are there any programs or initiatives that you kind of want to build out in the next the next couple of years? The program I'm most interested in and have been for a number of years is the LEAD Scholars Program for first generation to go to college students. Uh, presently, we can't handle all of the first generation students, which is about 10% of our student body are the first ones in their families to go to college. There are very particular challenges that they have. So that's one thing. Then we have our undocumented students, which we have a long tradition of assisting undocumented students here. The needs are much greater now because of the the threat that comes from the federal government and the, the amount of fear that these people are carrying. And there's like two circles. There's the immediate undocumented students. And then there are students who are legal, but their parents don't have, are, are undocumented. 
So what ha- how do they manage their fear of their parents being deported or something like that happening when they're trying to go to college and they're trying to study and they're trying to put up with some of the nasty things that happen on campus mm-hmm. from people who are anti-immigrant or anti-undocumented? How do they? So that's a real concern I have in terms of how best to support them. You know, at a time when we're really, you know, budget-wise, we're fairly constrained in terms of how many people we can hire and how many programs we can fund. So, how do we reappropriate monies and positions to mm-hmm. be able to support them? That's a real challenge right now. But those are those are two areas. Those are two groups that I'm particularly interested in. Uh, we also are dealing with the legacy of the Unity Four movement. So that on the, my ongoing concern has been, how do we make this an inclusive and welcoming campus at a time when the whole country is increasingly judgmental and uh, quick to isolate people? Mm-hmm. That's an ongoing challenge. And look, fortunately, with the Unity Four movement that started four years ago, uh, we put in place a number of programs, and, and we began addressing that very consciously. Mm-hmm. So, let's see, those are three major areas I'm looking at. The other one, which is really extremely frustrating, is the uh, how do we deal with the cost of living here in the valley? You know, for faculty and staff, mm-hmm. how do we deal with that? So, there's a lot of conversations going on behind the scenes. I can't announce anything on that, but talking with the mayors of the city, talking with the city councils of our San Jose and Santa Clara, talking with, you know, developers. How do we, how do we deal with this? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's the biggest question facing Silicon Valley right now. How do you keep your staff mm-hmm. when they, when it's increasingly difficult to afford to live here? Mm-hmm. Uh, on that topic of money, if, if right now I were to hand you, a check for $10 million and I say, you can, you can give it to charity. You can spend it on yourself. You can spend it on the university. Uh, I'm out of here. What would you do? With it? <laughs> <laughs> what would I do with the $10 million? Yeah. My first inclination is to say it would go into scholarships, mm-hmm. a scholarship endowment. Uh, but when you think about the bigger issues of staff and faculty cost of living, $10 million doesn't go very far. Um, so I'd have to sit down and think what would be most effective in terms of assisting the university. Mm-hmm. Uh, a $10 million endowment would grant, would generate about $450,000 a year once it was invested in the endowment. So with $450,000 a year, obviously I could help in scholarships. Mm-hmm. Okay, That would make a dent in scholarships, particularly for those who have it, are really challenged. We don't meet all the unmet need that families mm-hmm. have. People apply for financial aid every year about, we're over $6 million short of what we can do. So $450,000 a year would be helpful, mm-hmm. but I'm always looking long-term to build the endowments to support the ongoing scholarships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 10 million bucks, so write that check. <laughs> I'd like to see that. Uh, <laughs> um, and then about more about your, uh, your personal career. What would you say that up to this point in your career you're most proud of? I guess I'm most proud of my work as a priest when I can work with families, whether it's at weddings, baptisms, funerals. Those are the three main times I interact with families in pastoral situations. Uh, secondly, I would say it's interactions with students, particularly students who, who have problems and issues. And I've 
over my time in higher ed and over 30 years, there's been a lot of students that, you know, I've had, uh, with whom I've interacted. Mm -hmm. um, those are the two areas that really stand out mm -hmm. in terms of what I'm most proud of. It's very easy to say, oh, here at Santa Clara, I'm really proud of all the buildings we put up with the money we've raised. Mm -hmm. uh, that, and those are good things. Those are good things. But the things that I'm personally most proud about it would be the others. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then are there any new uh, new habits or practices in your life or things that you started within the past maybe five years that you think have made a big difference in your personal happiness or uh, mean, like peace? Or... Zumba? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Just more serious about exercise. Hmm. It's not very yeah. exciting, but yeah. much more serious about that. Cognizant of aging, <laughs> That's appropriate right. exercise, uh -huh. healthy living. Yeah, we pay more attention to that as we mature. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'd, I'd love to wrap up with a couple of shorter questions. So, first of all, are there any books that you recommend that every student should read? I'd say both the Father Boyle's books, you know, mm -hmm. Barking to the Choir is the latest one, and then Tattoos on the Heart is the previous one. Mm -hmm. Every student should read those. Issues of conscience. I always go back to um, Robert Bolt's book on Man for All Seasons, mm -hmm. the, that play based on the life of Thomas More. How does one live out of one's conscience and one's belief? Mm -hmm. uh, what is one place that you've traveled that you've really loved? First of all, Northern California. Since I moved up here mm -hmm. 10 years ago, I've done a lot of hiking up here mm -hmm. uh, with. Uh, Brother Keith Warner over in the Miller Center, mm -hmm. exploring up here in, 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 in the Santa Cruz Mountains and other areas around here. That's number one. Mm -hmm. Number two area places where I've traveled, uh, Shanghai. Mm -hmm. It's a fabulous place. Uh, I would say uh, uh, Jaipur in India, mm -hmm. another fabulous place. I'd say Florence in Italy mm -hmm. is, is fantastic. Uh, I like Rome. I like Rome a lot because I've been there many times and I, even though it's a big, noisy city, I mean, the history really does appeal to me. Mm -hmm. I love that. Uh, I want to go back to Ireland. I know mm -hmm. that. Uh, I want to go back to Norway. So those are some places. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Latin America. I was just thinking of San Salvador. Mm -hmm. yeah, I've been down there a number of times. You know, um, so that's a start. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, if you could send a message to every person in the United States, what would you want to say? I would quote Camus Bell, shut up and listen. Listen to other people with different opinions. Really listen. Listen with the ears of the heart. Don't be judgmental, like Father Boyle says. Listen to the burdens that people carry to understand what they're struggling with. And then reflect in terms of how best to live. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you could no longer be uh, president of the school, you can no longer be a Jesuit and you could just totally start some new career um, that's that's totally different from what you do now. What career would you want to try out? I can't imagine not being a Jesuit. <laughs> I can't. All right. I can't imagine that. Um, what new, I'm, question will come up eventually. What will I do after I'm here? Hmm. Yeah. I probably want to learn Spanish well enough so I'd be really fluent and then I could be pastorally more effective that way. Mm -hmm. I would probably want to find some way to continue working with students, mm -hmm. um, whether it's counselor, advisor, or whatever, mm -hmm. campus minister. I don't know. Yeah. 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 And then finally, what does your ideal Saturday look like? 
a day when you're not no school related work obligations how would you what would you want to do with your time <laughs> first of all i sleep till 11 o'clock yeah. so and then after that i go hiking okay. you know take off with a friend and head to the hills go hiking mm -hmm. absolutely maybe come back by way of wine tasting and then go out for an italian dinner how's that <laughs> <laughs> awesome well thanks so much for doing this interview i really appreciate it well you're very welcome Thank you so much for listening to the show today. You can subscribe to Voices of Santa Clara on the iTunes podcast app. You can visit VoicesOfSantaClara.com for interview transcripts, and you can like the Facebook page. Special thanks to Miles Elliott for the music. Thank you for listening, and have a nice day.